Hey, True Crimers, welcome to another episode of True Crime-ish. I'm your host, Jonah B., and I'm here to make your Mondays great again. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This is my 11th episode. I'm feeling a little milestone-ish. I did not think I would make it this far, so I'm giving myself a little mental pat on the back. And thank you guys for just tuning in each episode. The support has been mind-boggling, mind-blowing. I really thought I would have like five listeners, and I have way more than that. So I'll take that. It's 2018, y'all, and it's, uh, you know, two years after my favorite or my second favorite president, that is, has been elected, running things or ruining things, as some people would like to say. You got the Proud Boys running wild, gun violence plaguing our streets, our jobs, and our schools. There's so much violence in America, it's hard to keep count at this point. But one of the deadliest was the school shooting at Majory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The gunman killed 17 people and injured 17 others. R.I.P. to those we lost and peace be with those survivors. We also had the former USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University Dr. Larry Nassar being sentenced to up to 175 years after over 150 women and girls came forward with sexual abuse allegations. And according to the FBI data, hate crime violence rose to a 16-year high in 2018. They stated about 25% of most hate crime incidents occurred in or near residences and homes. In this case, we're about to learn that if someone looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, then indeed it is a duck. On March 17, 2018, on North Maple Street, located in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, a halfway home for veterans stood, Fraser Young Supportive Living. Fraser Young Supportive Living was a facility that housed both men and women with intellectual disabilities. On this particular day, Lisa Hathaway, who was a cook at the facility, heard loud screams. As she made her way towards the screams, she began to smell smoke. A fire had been set that day on one side of the facility, and you would not believe how the fire transpired. A resident who stayed in the facility had set another resident on fire by pouring gasoline on his head and setting him on fire with the lighter. As other residents began to realize what was taking place, they tried to help the guy who was on fire by, you know, patting him down and somehow getting him into the nearest bathroom, throwing him in the shower, trying to get rid of the fire that was surrounding him. The guy on fire eventually makes it outside waiting for medical attention to arrive. And at this point, all I can picture him is completely engulfed in flames, running, panicking, skin on fire, and just trying to do anything to make it stop. The cook, Lisa, makes her way outside and sees the guy who was set in flames sitting on a bench slumped over outside. She could see part of his skin that was completely falling off of his face, 
and it was at this very moment that fire and rescue arrived. As the Murfreesboro Fire and Rescue Department arrives, they see heavy smoke flowing out of the left side of the facility. And before they can even get inside, they see a victim that looks like he has been exposed to the flames sitting outside. They immediately have him sent to Vanderbilt Medical Center, where he would be labeled as critical, but in stable condition at the moment. As the police arrive, they begin to question the residents and the employees trying to get a better understanding of what happened here today. As they began to talk to some of the residents, they were told about how the man who was sent off to Vanderbilt Medical Center was Robert Miller, a resident of the home. And as they were trying to help him fight the flames, they were wildly growing, of course. Robert was able to tell that another resident had started this ordeal. Robert said that a man by the name of John Carruthers had lit him on fire. With that piece of information, along with the description that they have from other residents and employees, they began to scour the area in hopes of finding their suspect. Within the next hour, Officer Quinn Rodriguez was driving around the area and spotted a man who resembled that exact description. That person was walking in the Quickmark parking lot, carrying a backpack, looking very harmless and nothing like a man who just set another man on fire that very same day. But Officer Rodriguez decided to stop him anyway, just to be sure. And after Officer Rodriguez asked the man where he was coming from, the man responded with, and I quote, I live in a house I burned. This prompted Officer Rodriguez to check him to make sure he did not have any weapons or anything he could use to harm himself or others on him. As he checked his bag, he found clothes, but also a bottle of Zippo lighter fluid. And after identifying him as John Carothers, the name that was given to him from the residents and employees at the Fraser Young Supportive Living Facility, he knew that he had to go ahead and bring this guy in. Good old John was born on February 2nd, 1966, the season of the Aquarius. And I can't say that I know many Aquarius, but the ones that I do know, it's giving crazy season. But anywho, not everyone can be an Aries. There is not a ton of information out there about John, and I really dug y'all. I could find that he mainly went by Danny, and he had only been a resident at the living facility for three months. And he also had been charged with second degree murder two other times in both 1999 and 2011 in McNary County, Tennessee, but accepted a plea deal on both occurrences for a lesser charge. I really wanted the details so I could understand why they would let an individual who clearly likes to murder stay in a facility with so many others. Like every resident staying in the building was really just a sitting duck waiting to be slaughtered and they honestly had no idea. Even though this was a halfway home for veterans, John, aka Danny Boy, never served in the military, so it's weird to me in the first place that he was even there. But at this point in his life, he is 53 years old. 
there is no mention of any family members or, you know, any family members at all in general that may have suffered from an intellectual disability. So I'm not sure if he was just a slow bunny, a schizo, or a person suffering from multiple personalities or what, but he was not able to live alone and take care of himself fully like a functioning adult. Lisa Hathaway, the cook in the facility, did state she had never seen this coming from John. To her, he seemed like a nice man, and that was the only account that I could find where someone actually gave me any insight about John, but I do not know how nice you can be when you're on your third murder charge, but anywho, moving forward. So when the police first arrested John, he was arrested for aggravated assault and arson. But remember when I said that Robert was sent to the hospital and was considered in stable condition? Well, that was just for the moment. On March 24th, after a week of fighting for his life, Robert was pronounced dead. His cause of death was listed as death from sustaining third degree burns over 40% of his body. Now that Robert unfortunately had passed and was clear that he died from being lit on fire, the case was now bumped up to murder, which meant that the detectives had to get ready for trial. This case was pretty open and shut. The police had eyewitness testimonies from multiple witnesses and employees. They had a direct finger pointed from Robert naming his murderer. But what they did not have was a motive. Eventually, five months later in August, the police got exactly what they were looking for. Prison guards intercepted a letter that John was trying to send. The letter only caught the guards' interest since it was boldly addressed to the American Institute of Theology in Arkansas, which is basically just a white supremacist group. So, of course, the guards were like, looky, looky what we have here. Let's just go ahead and open this thing right on up. And much to their surprise, they found a very interesting letter. The letter began with, and I quote, My brothers in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. My name is John Carruthers, and I believe the Bible is about white people and four white people. I am in the Rutherford County Jail for burning a black man. I set him on fire with the lighter fluid poured on his head. End quote. The letter also requested the group send a study Bible and asked the recipient to look up Murfreesboro, Tennessee, 37129 for March 17th or 18th. It appears he died on the 24th. End quote. I guess he included that last part to confirm that he is who he said he was, but this information was all the police needed to add the final touches to their evidence needed for trial. After verifying that the handwriting was actually John's, they were ready to go ahead and shoot their shot at putting John away, which might prove to be a little difficult since he had avoided this two times before. So they went ahead and charged John Carruthers with murder, and he was also charged with eight counts of reckless endangerment, along with one count of aggravated arson. Now with the knowledge of the letter, Detective Jacob Fountain, District Attorney, 
Jennings Jones and his team considered the crime to be racially motivated, which was something that they hadn't dealt with before. Also, Tennessee didn't have a hate crime law, but they did have a hate crime sentencing enhancement, which is a whole other strange thing on its own. But anywho, let's keep moving forward. This enhancement was also difficult to prove under the Civil Rights Intimidation Act. In Carruthers' association with Kingdom Identity Ministries, a white supremacist group, strengthened their racially motivated theory. Witnesses at the trial included Detective Fountain, who testified that at the crime scene, he tried to talk to Miller as he was being placed in the ambulance, but couldn't because he had been placed under a sedative. He said he couldn't tell if there had been any bad blood between the two men. And on that same day, Lisa Hathaway testified to her account of what happened. Carl Pierce, the assistant chief of the Murfreesboro Fire and Rescue, testified that the fire started in Miller's bed in the front bedroom that had multiple windows broken out of it. He also testified that they found skin and burnt clothes in the shower. He determined the fire was arson and that it had been set by an accelerant. He stated police and firefighters began looking for Carruthers after questioning the other the other residents at the halfway house. Officer Quinn Rodriguez also testified about his arrest of Carruthers that day. After Carruthers' mental evaluation was complete because they had to go ahead and put the case on pause since his attorneys were claiming that he wasn't mentally there for trial. So after that evaluation was done and he was deemed fit to stand trial, the case was handed over to the grand jury. It wasn't until July of 2019 when the case was brought back into court and this time Carruthers finally had something to say. He wanted to plead guilty to the murder of Robert Miller. Part of his plea agreement deal meant that his charges for arson and endangerment would be removed from his record. And on that very same day, the judge handed down a sentence of life in prison. But get this, he would have the possibility of parole. Now, I don't know how you literally get up and confess that you set another person on fire because of their race. And I don't know what part of the judge's brain would give him the chance at parole. But once again, anywho, we are going to keep moving forward. Carruthers had some last words to say before he left the courtroom. He said, and I quote, I'm sorry about what happened. I was off my medicine and I am really, really sorry for what happened. End quote. <sighs> Y'all, this is just very like touch and go for me because I really hate when people try to fake like they have a medical or mental health problem and you know that caused them to commit the crime like that justifies it for some reason but anyway I'm gonna get into that later let's keep moving forward Judge David Bragg told the family there's nothing I can do to replace the loss of your son nothing I can say to you that can make it any easier but I do hope that the resolution of this matter can help you close a chapter and move forward and continue with the life you led. Miller's parents, Robert Miller Jr. and Vernice Miller approved of the sentencing and Robert Miller Jr. told the Daily News Journal, 
I would look forward to seeing my son in the resurrection. The prosecutor who prosecuted the case, of course, thanked the police and the fire department for their great work, and he also thanked the family for their cooperation. Y'all know I can't ever end a case without highlighting the victim, and I am sad to say that little is known about Miller's life up until a 2017 incident that was triggered by his schizoaffective disorder. While staying with his parents, Miller experienced a nonviolent episode, and he was sent to Skyline Medical Center in Nashville. Doctors recommended that he be treated at the Tanbrook facility in Cookville, but he was ultimately transferred to Merce Freesboro, where he met Carruthers. Miller was survived by his parents, Robert and Vernice, who in March 2019 actually filed a lawsuit against Fraser Young's supportive living. Annie Young and Ida Fraser were the co-owners of this facility. And they were going to be facing a wrongful death suit, along with some other employees that were named and the 10 Broick Healthcare. The lawsuit stated Carruthers needed to be in a facility that was managed by a licensed clinical director with at least one staff member who participated in a rigorous program of staff training and development, which the program lacked. Carruthers require intensive care for adults with intellectual disabilities who have exhibited high-risk behavior, placing themselves and or others in danger of harm. They believe Tenbrook Healthcare is guilty of medical malpractice due to placing both men in the facility. Miller's parents are seeking a jury trial with any monetary relief awarded the jury saw fit. So far, Circuit Judge Barry Tidwell was assigned the case, but no trial date has been set. Mental illness really played a big part in this case, and the effect it had on the people involved in this case is everlasting. I know that mental illness is very much a real thing, and it's often a hard battle to handle alone. And sometimes even when you have a huge support system, it's still difficult for those people who have to, you know, face their mental illnesses every day. And it's difficult for the people that have to help them, those parents, those siblings, anyone who's put in this predicament where they're having to, you know, help their loved one face these challenges. I know there are two different sides of this spectrum. There is one side where people who don't even have mental illnesses at all and just use the word anxiety and illnesses and mental disabilities to their advantage. You know, let's say to commit crimes and get away with it for two other times before on that third try, you actually have to face some charges. The one thing that John Carruthers really did that kind of like picked my buttons is when he said, oh, my God, I'm off my medicine. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Like him saying that would really do anything for Robert Miller's for Robert Miller's family at all. It kind of just, I don't know, rubbed me the wrong way because I really believe that people get away with this all the time. Just claiming that they have a mental breakdown or whatever mental illness and that they should just be looked let off the hook. I definitely feel like there should be some type of middle ground where, yes, if someone with actual mental illness did get off of their medicine and it did 
chemically imbalanced them in some way. And, you know, they just did some things that were completely out of character. Yeah, I don't, I do not expect you to completely throw the book at them and lock them away forever. But there does need to be some type of middle ground where just because you have a mental illness and just because you're taking some certain medicine that does not excuse you from punishment that does not excuse you from I don't know going to trial from facing a jury I just think we have to find some type of middle ground and let me get off my soapbox in conclusion this case it was another heavy one with the racial undertones and just Why we have people in this world that hate other based off of their skin tone, I will never understand. I cannot comprehend. But Robert Miller and his parents thought he was heading to a place that could help him. And the Fraser Young Supportive Living Facility was supposed to do just that. John Carruthers, on the other end, had a history of violence and hatred that he carried around with him. Both men landed at the same facility, reaching out for the same resources, but ended up with two very different outcomes. I can spiral all day thinking about what different choices could have been made on all fronts to avoid this tragedy, but doing so would benefit absolutely no one. I know a lot of us do not walk around in fear of someone wanting to set us on fire, even though that does cross my mind. But that is not what I wanted you to take away from this story. What I wanted you to hear was that some of us are walking around showing you exactly what we are. Don't let anyone play in your face saying one thing, asking for one thing, but delivering a whole nother thing. If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. Please believe y'all, it is a duck. (laughs) 